0: Hello and welcome to Mimi UU. I'm Mimi Nicklin, the host of the show. This podcast is anonymous and it's audio only without names to protect from unconscious bias or judgment and to allow true empathy to grow. The goal of the show? is to share diverse stories from around the world by giving people a platform to share openly so that other people, like you, can understand diverse realities from around the globe. We exist to create empathy and not just talk about it. Welcome to Mimi UU. You, you.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Mimi UU. You, you. The show is all about sharing understanding with our world, about creating empathy and allowing you to drive your empathy up simply by being here with my guest and I today. I'm very excited to introduce this guest today, who's here to talk about something that is actually a very topical conversation. And so many of us don't know how to truly respond and react to this group of people. Today, we're going to be talking about refugees and how to empathize with them, why they need your empathy. And why that's so hard for some people to really create that space for them before we start i just want to ask my guest every show is anonymous and are you comfortable and happy to be here on the show today
2: uh yes i'm definitely very uh excited to share about my experiences working with refugees
1: wonderful well welcome welcome to the show let's start at the beginning of your journey in this space how did you start working with the refugee uh, communities and what drove you to be there?
2: Hmm. Um, so I would say my journey working with refugees began at the end of my uh, higher education. So I did a degree in psychology and um, I guess pursuing clinical work in the mental health field was something I was passionate about. And uh, I remember at the end of my degree, I wanted to get some practical experience working with vulnerable populations because uh, it's so relevant to mental health issues. So I was um, just looking for a job and I stumbled upon a local uh, NGO um, within my country, which uh, worked with the urban poor. But uh, in my case, it involved a lot of uh, refugees.
1: Wonderful. When you first started in that role, can you remember now, what were your first sort of memories or or sort of areas that you really recognized when you started that work? What struck you?
2: Well, I joined my uh, workplace in the middle, in the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, I remember it was quite shocking to me because uh, like coming from a middle upper-class family, you know, you're in a pandemic locked in at home and you have all of your resources. You can just sit at home, use the internet, you have food, but A lot of the people I worked with in my workplace don't have that luxury when they aren't able to go out and about. They really literally have nothing to eat. My gosh. So, uh, Yeah, it was kind of shocking disconnect I saw. And yeah, it it was very eye-opening for me when I first joined.
1: Hmm. And the people you were working with, could you communicate with them? Did they speak a language that you were able to understand?
2: Mm, Yes. So um, most of the refugees I worked with have actually been uh, staying in my country. Uh, I think, uh, would it be okay for me to share where I am, where I am
1: based? Absolutely, of course.
2: Sure, sure. Okay. So uh, I am based in Malaysia and many of the refugees that uh, came to Malaysia, they usually come from Myanmar and Pakistan as well as Somalia. Yes. So um, they usually have uh, been in Malaysia for a couple of years and they tend to have uh, picked up a working knowledge of the local Malay language uh, though in of course in some cases uh, maybe they're just new to Malaysia they may not have uh, assimilated yet they may not have uh, developed their language so yeah generally speaking though I was able to communicate with them.
1: And where you know you, you mentioned that you met, you met with these uh, refugees that are already in the country you are in the COVID-19 pandemic at the time and it you know really strikes you as a, as a very difficult reality these people don't have food to eat every day, where do they get their food from? So they wake up in the morning, how are they managing to to care for themselves?
2: Uh, so I think to answer that question, I need to provide a bit more context. So uh, usually in Malaysia, uh, I, I feel the local population does not really look upon refugees favorably. I think there are a lot of negative stereotypes we have about them. So uh, I mean, the locals would definitely discriminate, I feel. Uh, whether deliberately or otherwise towards them and uh, that can make supporting themselves very difficult. So um, a lot of them would have lost the jobs uh, and they would not be able to, well, basically earn an income during the pandemic. However, because of all of this uh, discrimination, I do notice that working with the refugees, they have a very, very strong community bond. So usually during the pandemic, there is a lot of support you see uh, in their community to really keep everyone alive, basically. So it was quite an amazing thing to see as well.
1: And why do you think the local community is, is prejudiced, is, is stereotyping against these groups of people? What What is fueling that segregation?
2: Usually, uh, I mean, for one, Malaysia does not uh, technically recognise uh, refugees because we did not ratify the Refugee Convention. So uh, as a result, refugees that come into Malaysia, you could arguably label them as actually illegal immigrants. So that means they have no legal right to work and uh, what that entails is that usually they are working in uh, environments it's sort of like blue collar workers and they're they're prone to being exploited. I think uh, for the average Malaysian, your interaction with refugees is usually they are the ones who is doing all of the menial tasks and I think a lot of people might consider them as like low class and I think that gives them a very negative stereotype towards them and i think we also have this uh, stereotype towards the poor where they could be sort of criminals even though uh, i didn't really see that very often when i was working with them
1: and let's talk about how these refugees got to malaysia and of course there's various journeys that, that bring people to the shores but on the whole where you know you mentioned some of the countries these refugees are coming from how are they ending up in malaysia are they coming by land are they coming by sea
2: Uh, So because there are various different refugee groups, uh, it depends from uh, the country to country. So the ones from Myanmar tend to come uh, by boat. I'm sure, uh, I mean, maybe you've maybe heard of the Rohingya refugee crisis, where uh, we have uh, Rohingya refugees coming through boat uh, to various countries in Southeast Asia. So through boat is one of them. Uh, Of course, they also come through land. Usually they uh, employ human traffickers to uh, get them through land via Thailand into Malaysia. Uh, So that would be for the Myanmarese refugees. Uh, For the ones further away, like Pakistan and Somalia, they tend to uh, come via plane.
1: Interesting. Okay, so tell us a little bit more about that because I think you know we have this perception that, uh, as I said, that refugees tend to you know come by the borders, you know, via ocean, via land. But if they're flying, how are they getting into the country? How does that work?
2: So that is also uh, based on the context in. Uh, in the other countries. So I'd say, I think specifically we'll be talking about Pakistan and uh, Somalia. So usually in Pakistan, the refugees tend to be of the Ahmadiyya Muslim sect. So they are uh, a sect of Islam which is not really recognized uh, by the local government in Pakistan. So there's a lot of discrimination there and actually uh, hearing many of the stories from them, they always speak about how they can, they're prone to being attacked by locals and sometimes even murdered there were a lot of um, times when they told me they had close family members that were murdered. So there's a lot of uh, threat of life for the Pakistanis, uh, for the Ahmadiyya Pakistani communities. But uh, usually because they have been established in Pakistan for a while, they are actually, uh, they can sometimes be quite uh, well-educated, uh, have good jobs at the time, until there was a immediate threat to their life in which they uh, kind of fled from their country to Malaysia. So uh, as for the Somalian, um, refugees, they tend to have a support system in a sense that uh, they have family members in neighboring countries like Saudi Arabia who to support them financially. Like. But to get out of Somalia, uh, because it was a, it's a war-torn country at the time, they uh, they would need that support to get out. Like. So that's how they get come in via play.
1: Okay. And, you know, so that we can imagine a little bit about their journey, let's imagine these people are landing in uh, Kuala Lumpur Airport. And they, you know, they managed to make their way through immigration. They are now in Kuala Lumpur. Where do they go? Where do they live? Who helps them the minute that they arrive?
2: So uh, on that, most of the time it would be local, uh, community established communities of themselves. So like uh, there are several areas within the Klein Valley which uh, are distinctly like very populated by refugees. So uh, I w- I w- I would always go there almost on a daily basis during my uh, work here, Um, and usually they are the ones that kind of uh, the refugees would be in contact with first and when they land or they come in, they would reach out to these communities, uh, these community-based organizations, they're called, and they would provide them with uh, some of the initial support needed to try and uh, get them uh, independent within Malaysia. Mm
1: -hmm. And tell us a little bit about how they live. You know, so they they speak to these uh, community organisations. They make their way into the the refugee community that they let's say come from or belong to, at least from a sort of ethnic uh, or, or nationality point of view. Uh, are they living in apartments? Are they you know do they have affordable housing? Mm. Is there running water? Uh, what what's it like to live there?
2: So many of the refugees I worked with are considered urban refugees, so they would live in low cost apartments and flats um so yes they would have uh running water but i do know that there are actually populations of refugees that beyond uh, Kuala Lumpur which is where i'm based so that's like Kuala Lumpur uh for your context is like a city so like in other states of Malaysia for example which are less uh, developed there are some which i have heard that they stay in plantations or uh, on the outskirts of jungles um and th- th- those definitely would be a bit more inaccessible but uh where i work with generally they stayed in apartments uh.
1: mm. and what do they i mean obviously they're looking for work um and and as you mentioned some of them are very highly qualified workers i always remember a short story here but uh, a few years ago i was in south africa and there was a gentleman in the car park at night helping me park my car And I had a conversation with him and and thanked him for helping me. He was also of a a refugee status in South Africa at the time. And he told me that he was a qualified um, pediatric surgeon in his own country. So, you know, once upon a time, he had been a a surgeon at home, you know, very qualified, finished his studies, uh, had practiced for a a few years. and, And due to, you know, the reality of that country, he had to flee and now he was parking cars, you know, in a car park. Um, and, and you touched on the same thing there that many of these people, particularly from Pakistan, they have, you know, jobs and and careers and lives before they end up in a refugee status. So how do they then try to rebuild their lives? And what's the role of organizations like the one you were working in to help them get there?
2: First of all, I just want to comment that uh, what the story you described was very uh, relatable to me because I, I indeed did work with uh, some refugees who, Uh, were very educated, had very fulfilling careers back in their home countries before they uh, transitioned to Malaysia. Uh, So usually um, how they support themselves is usually you see them working in, as I mentioned, blue-collar jobs. So they might be your restaurant waiter, Uh, they might be the one who washes your car. So um, some of these roles that they need to take up in order to support the family can be very... um, hard for them to adjust because you know maybe one day you are a surgeon and all of a sudden you are waiting tables so that, that adjustment is very difficult for some of them uh, but you know for in the sometimes to keep their family alive they they do need to do it So and mm-hmm. it's a very unfortunate uh, reality that we have here
1: mm. and you, you mentioned at the very beginning about your own degree and, and a passion and an interest for mental health is there support you know, you mentioned it's very hard for them to, to make these adaptations, new country, you know, very different role, new language, all of these types of things. Are there organizations, are there people out there that are helping them with mental health, with, you know, the resilience in these periods?
2: Uh, yes, sorry. I just remember that you asked me what my NGO did as well. Uh, so <laughs> no, uh, let me just answer that. first. So the NGO I work with is, uh, is an educational institution for Uh, the urban for us so we kind of run a school actually no we don't kind of we do run a school uh, that uh, uh, takes in those who are in the say the bottom 40 category of people uh, which also includes a lot of refugees that so we provide uh, education we also do provide some mental health support because we do have a counseling unit uh, in-house to support the students and sometimes where relevant the parents as well uh. Uh, of course uh, beyond my NGO there are many other Uh, organizations that do support refugees. So there are organizations that do look into say gender-based violence amongst uh, refugees. Uh, There are those like the United Nations who look into resettlement of the refugees. Let me think what else. Um, There are also child protection uh, organizations as well that serve uh, specifically refugees. So um, they are well supported in the sense that there are organizations available but unfortunately it is the available resources such as funding or manpower that makes it difficult to just ad- address every single need uh, within the communities.
1: And let's, let's talk a little bit about the children. You, you mentioned there there are some child protective services um, and also some organizations helping with, with gender-based violence and that type of thing. Um, the children, they, they have schools and, and I'm sort of imagining small children at this stage. You know, can they go to school? Are they learning to read? Are they learning to speak? What is it like for those children?
2: Uh, so, because uh, uh, Malaysia doesn't recognize refugees, uh, they, the children aren't able to enroll into our local government schools. Lah. So, uh, usually in terms of education, uh, they either will go into sort of small community-run schools uh, within their own uh, area, or they can come to an education educational institution like my own, which uh, is, would be a school for them that's available for them. So... um. The problem with education for refugees is that they are also, you know, they don't have much resources as well. So it can be quite difficult for them to really provide a very holistic education. Most of them only provide it up to the primary level. Uh, My NGO did provide it up to secondary level, but because we are only one institution and there's so many, we're not able to accept so many students in La. so in terms of, like, secondary education, it's really underserved in Malaysia for the refugees.
1: And those those children, secondary school children, don't get into school. What do they then do with their days? How how What's an average day like for these teenagers?
2: Well, usually, if they are able to find work, they would actually be working even as young as 13, 14 years old. Um, otherwise, they could just be hanging out within their community, lah. Um, which, of course, can open the way up to other social problems, lah, unfortunately, because they also do stay in areas which could be more crime-ridden as well.
1: And what type of issues are there? I mean, again, when we look globally at some of those issues around refugee communities, as you mentioned, there's crime, there's some gang risks in some countries, uh, there, are, there are drugs, of course. Are these some of the issues that these young people are, are
0: facing?
2: I do would say that there that is uh, indeed a risk where they may join gangs as well. But um, based on my experience, actually, I did not really see um that very often. But at the same time, uh, I do know there are more sort of difficult to reach, com- refugee communities uh, within the Klang Valley that I did not manage to go to. So there are some areas which are even more uh, crime ridden than the ones that I am familiar with. So because I've never really worked with them directly, I cannot say with certainty like what is the sort of like percentage of those not in education that would uh, cry related activities. But from the ones that I did work with, um, it was actually quite not really a systemic issue. It definitely did occur, but um, it was not a big trend. But it could also be because that most of the ones I worked with were uh, students of my institution. So therefore, you know, um, they are are still in the education system.
1: And when you talk to them, these young people, students at the school you you worked within, what are their dreams? Where, where where do they want to go? Do they do they see themselves as Malaysians now to some extent? They want to stay, or for them they want to go home? Is there a home? What what do you hear from them?
2: Generally speaking, a lot of them have very similar dreams to kids, like local kids or kids from other countries of their age. They want to be a doctor, astronaut um they have all of the same ambitions it's just that uh, a lot of the times they put their hopes in resettlement by the united nations so that that would mean they would head into usually countries like australia america and canada and that is where they would see their future at but unfortunately there is not really a date that the united nations gives them on when their resettlement uh, is so i mean it can be very uncertain for them and the family like they could be resettled within a year, they could be resettled within the next 10 years. I've I've met refugees who have been in uh, Malaysia for actually multiple generations. Um, In terms of their dreams, I feel it's the same. Um, Some of them, they would actually love to stay in Malaysia. Some of them actually say they're treated better here than back in their home country, but uh, because of the discrimination here as well, and you know, the inability to legally work, uh, those are some barriers for them to fully accept and assimilate into the country.
1: And do you see in your work or have you seen in your work, you know, we've touched a little bit on that discrimination, the stereotypes from the local Malaysian community in this case, but that's not unique to Malaysia. You know, there is tension between local community and refugees all around the world. Do you think it's fear that drives those local communities to push them away? Uh, Why why do you see these barriers growing between the locals and, and the refugees, particularly when they have... You know, they are getting education. Many of them have qualifications. What is it that stops that integration?
2: Like, I mean, speaking from personal experience, all of the stereotyping, I would say it's something I learned. So um, things like, uh, like within my own family, my parents would have taught me when I'm younger, like, you know, uh, you have to study how you'll become like that refugee working in that job or these uh, refugees are not like um, safe people. They could be actually criminals for example so uh, I think it's a lot of ingrained local culture where like parents uh, develop their stereotype from somewhere and they pass it on to their uh, to the next generation so I mean I was uh, definitely taught these when I was a kid and like working with them it was very different from what my parents uh, taught me so it's like um, kind of being misinformed uh, a lot of People seem to have these stereotypes but they've never actually had like a very close experience talking and working with these people or interacting with refugees and seeing the other side of the coin, basically.
1: And I, it really reminds me of something that I talk to lots of people about, which is that in the end, we're all far more alike than we are different. So those things that divide us, whether that's money or social status, you know, uh, being able to live in the country you're born in or, you know, becoming a refugee, at the end of the day, we're all human, right? We all want the same things, to be safe, to be loved, to bring up our children in safe environments, to to grow, to be educated. What do you think we need to see more of in in a country like Malaysia in order to overcome those barriers and remind people, you know, that refugees are just like you, really? You know, they're people that have relocated their lives, but we are all human at the end of the
2: day. Hmm. Uh, I want to say, like, to educate the public more about the refugee plight would be like what would be ideal, but I think the issue is that there's so many systemic barriers. Like as I mentioned before, Malaysia not ratifying the Refugee Convention means that um, you can't really talk about refugees because you can you you in a way you can say like oh you are endorsing illegal immigrants in Malaysia. So I think there's a lot of legal um, sort of restrictions to really push for a, a clear advocate advocating for refugees. So um, a lot of the times we educate each other about refugees on say social media or like kind of smaller campaigns rather than very nationwide uh, sort of programs on, on their plight. So I think like for the average citizen in Malaysia, a lot of sharing of their own personal experiences working in uh, amongst refugees and education on their lives would be uh, the most feasible one. Hmm.
1: Personal storytelling, which is always, you know, so, so powerful. Um, and let's, you know, we, we obviously talk a lot about understanding and, and empathy on this show. As you've worked with communities and people that you've got to know, you know, over the period of that work, what have been some of the things that you have found, I guess, most surprising for your own understanding, things that you really came to realize around, you know, the refugee community, your role? What are some of the things that you want other people to understand?
2: I The one thing that I always remember most about my work is how resilient refugees are. Like sometimes I walk into the house of one of the refugees and talk to them and I hear about all of their struggles. And it just amazes me the strength of character they have to continue going on um, surviving in Malaysia, like meeting single mothers who uh, have to take care of the whole family like multiple children while also holding a job paying rent which they can barely afford to begin with like all of these challenges and yet they persevere and it's just really amazing to see and sometimes like uh, in cases like that like I have one particular case which I'm very fond of it was a a single mom with uh, three kids actually and I remember that she would um she was very very stressed out by all of the burden placed on her and it would manifest in sort of um, kind of anger outbursts so like let's say if the kid uh, didn't do their homework and the teacher reported this to the mother the mother would actually fly into a blind rage and, and actually uh, beat her her child so that was why we got involved in the first place we wanted to address this issue and, and we looked into the case and we find out the underlying causes you know all of the stress of being a mother being the sole breadwinner and having to take care of three kids and one of them was actually a, a disabled person. Um, and like talking to her, I realized she's actually a very, very caring and very, very loving woman. And uh, how I addressed that case was that we actually went through sort of uh, skills training and a sort of therapy with her. And I mean, mm-hmm. after the, the whole thing, after I closed the case, I realized like, wow, the, that mother became such an amazing person. She was managing her household much better. Um it's just that to see that transformation from um just barely getting by to actually thriving in the environment that she's been put in it was such an amazing story of resilience that I like I see can see in a lot of refugee families and it's just such an amazing and humbling experience for me.
1: Mm. Well it's phenomenal work that you're doing and uh, I think you know what that really tells me as well is that so often we can judge people by their behavior without understanding, as you just said, you know, the cause of that behavior and the pressures and the realities on those people. Um, You know, not all of us can do the work that you do. Um, But if you had to give some advice to people, perhaps in Malaysia or anywhere in the world that is living close to a refugee community, you know, to the average person out there, perhaps listening to the show today, what can they do? What, what would you advise for them if they're listening to you and they want to become more connected, to understand, to help? What would you recommend? What's your advice?
2: Well, if, uh, if I had to give one, okay, I'll give two pieces of advice. The first one is assuming that uh, you can do anything in the world. And that, that would be to actually visit their house and actually talk to them there you can really see the reality of their situation you can hear their stories really personally and really understand what are the struggles and uh challenges that they go through so that would be the most that'd be the best way i feel to educate yourself on the on the educate on the refugee flight sorry uh the second advice which is probably more practical i would say is um do kind of take note like i think a lot of us probably have interacted with refugees and never really realized it. like a lot of the Uh, people that um, you know in our daily life for myself I always uh, look at the people who are serving my table for example or washing my car those are times when I see hey it's a refugee that is uh, doing this or performing this service for me and I just remember how I worked with them uh, for several years so um, I think that one is be very be mindful of the people that you work with and do remember that every person has a has a very rich story to tell and I think refugees have uh, very enlightening and very amazing stories that look delve into our human nature that that they can share. Uh, if mm. you have the opportunity to hear it,
1: it's about being curious, right? Actually, being curious and and asking questions. And my last my last question for you, really, around that is: from the work you've done with these refugees, and you've spoken about their tenacity and you know their their patience and resilience, really, do would you say on their behalf? That they want to be asked about their lives. Are, do they generally, and of course, you can't speak on behalf of everyone, but do you think that there is an openness to tell their stories, to be included, to, you know, to to have those curiosities? Um, because I think often for people they feel shy or nervous to engage with people that don't look like them or perhaps don't speak like them. What's your take on that? Having worked within these communities,
2: mm, I would say that. Uh, in my capacity as a social worker, uh, it was a bit easier for me to walk into the community because, uh, you know, they would want to share it with me because I might be able to help them. So for me, I had that advantage. But um, because within Malaysia, especially how uh, we've kind of grouped them, like we, we think of the refugees as a single out group and then like say our locals think of themselves as another group. There is definitely that Uh, barrier and distance between locals and refugees that would probably really pose a barrier. So like, let's say I see a refugee out in public and I just start talking to them and asking about their uh, story. I think there would be some uh, shyness to share about that. Um, But I think like if we want to put in that effort to understand the other side better, I think they would open up. Because uh, I would say that Having more knowledge, I mean, people having more knowledge of the refugee plight, especially for refugees themselves, I think it would serve them. Like they would, uh, probably be more accepted within the local community. Like, especially since the environment is so discriminatory against them already. So, anything to lessen that would be, uh, would be good for them. I would say.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on to the show today and and just sharing a little bit of the other side of that community that so many of us don't get to see. My last question is around anonymity. The show is anonymous, but you are welcome to reveal your identity should you choose to do so. Today, would you like to remain anonymous?
2: Um, that's a good question. I think I would be okay with sharing my identity. How should I go about that?
1: You can share your name and obviously we know you're in Malaysia. Uh, But you can just share your name and where you are. Um, And if you want to talk about the organization you've worked with, you're welcome
0: to.
2: Okay, I'll I'll do that. I I do think the organization could use all the support we can get. So uh, my name is John Kong. I'm based in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. So uh, I used to work. So actually, I'm not really working with this NGO anymore. Uh, I used to work for one called uh, Dignity for Children Foundation. It's an educational institution for the urban poor that includes stateless, Malaysians, uh refugees and people in the lower income uh, bracket la. so um currently I am I'm, I'm doing my uh, master's in clinical psychology as I I feel like it's time for me to upscale myself I, I would definitely see myself uh, doing some work for the re- community and for the refugees as well I I'm currently in a phase where I want to just uh, in- increase my capacity it was quite amazing to actually be working there and uh actually interact with, their, with the community so closely and really see what is the impact you're doing and see the outcome of it. So if you guys are, uh, are interested, you can look it up. It's on Instagram, Dignity for Children Foundation. You can see the work that we've done.
1: Amazing. Well, I will add the link to the Dignity for Children Foundation into the notes of the show so that we can share their work. I'm absolutely confident they can use all the support that uh, they get in the work that they do. And John, thank you very much for joining today and just bringing this message forwards and reminding people, as we've touched on today, that we are all far more alike than we are different and that everybody has a story. And sometimes it just takes uh, taking a moment to really pause and listen to understand those that we're sharing our cities and our communities with. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining this really important conversation today. As I touched on in the beginning the refugee crisis, the refugee reality is impacting countries all over the world. So wherever you are, there is likely to be a community nearby that could use your empathy. So thank you for joining today. Please do continue to join us and follow us across social media and do subscribe to hear more stories just like John's in the future. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for joining us today on Mimi UU. You, you. This episode is one in a series that has been designed to create empathy in our world. If you would like to join us on the show, please click on www.joinmimiuu.com or follow us across social media at Mimi Show. I believe that the more the world talks about empathy, the more empathy the world will have. And I hope that this show is the beginning of doing just that.